Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap. Returning after a summer break with in-depth analysis and all the latest news. Another year, another Edinburgh. And as we cross our fingers for an in-person 2022 event, I'm joined by 2021 Advisory Chair Georgia Brown to reflect on the festival. And later, John Elms and Hannah Bowler are on hand to dissect all the key takeaways from C4 privatisation to Jack Thorne's incredible McTaggart to some of the best commissions. All that to come on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. So here we are, the Broadcast News Wrap returns after a summer off. I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Bowler and John Elms, who are with me. In a second, we'll go off to our Georgia Brown interview. Georgia Brown was, was the Edinburgh Advisory Chair. And sadly, we are not joined by our fourth News Wrap host, Jesse Whittock, but we are welcoming a new person to the News Wrap family, which is Jesse's new son, Joey Whittock, and hopefully he'll be making his first News Wrap appearance over the coming months. So we can't wait for that. So congratulations, Jesse, but uh, sadly couldn't join us today. But Hannah and John, how are we doing? I'm good. Isn't Joey already on his first assignment? I'm pretty sure uh, Jesse's got him trying to find scoop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you got to blood them early in uh, in the trade world. So we're all very excited uh, for, for the appearance of Joey. But it's been, it's been a long week for us guys. And before we reflect on what took place at Edinburgh 2021, I spoke with Georgia Brown, this year's advisory chair. Thank you so much for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here talking all things that I'm very passionate about, of course, including the Edinburgh Festival. Exactly, exactly. So we're fresh from Edinburgh. It took place last week, Monday to Thursday. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you a few things uh, about how, how you felt the festival went and, and some stuff around the preparation as well, which I'm always quite interested by. So I thought that's where I'd start, actually. How, how did the prep go for the, this festival? And how on earth do you balance running a streamer's European operation with <laughs> also organising Edinburgh? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I think you all know this. I am... Um... A long found, you know, I've, I've been such a fan of the festival for so long. I came up myself through the ones to watch scheme uh, too many moons ago to think about. So I feel like I owe a lot to the festival personally. So when Stuart called and was like, you probably don't have the time. I was like, I'll make the time because mm. I just think it's so integral to the conversation. And the other thing is, you know, as someone who does attend the festival regularly and, you know, talk to my peers about it, I think there's a lot that the festival can do to be, um, you know, more relevant and bring itself more up to date in terms of the conversations that it's having because I think it is a great place for us to come together as a group of individuals and kind of share common thought you know raise issues of the day and actually make a bit of a change so the prep was you know the prep was the prep it was fantastic we were really in the weeds and working with Stuart and Campbell and Fatima and but you know I think what was great for me was it was a real coming of minds we all came together and had very similar themes that we wanted to talk about you know, I set out the theme of accelerating change and the festival were very on board with that very quickly, as did the incredible committee that helped help put it all together. So we were very lucky, I think, from that sense. We've all felt, you know, like a lot of the industry after a year of being at home and having such a tough time that, you know, reflecting, we all need to do more, actually, and put our energy into the right place and, and focus ourselves in the right way. And I think we're already starting to see out of the festival an incredible response to some of the topics that we raise, which I'm very happy about. It's interesting what you are saying about making things relevant. Is there a pressure to, to make the Edinburgh Festival that you're looking after, like, really current? And, and, and how, did you, how do you feel like you went about doing that? No, I mean, maybe there should have been. <laughs> I didn't feel there was. I think 
you know, as someone who is so in touch with the industry, obviously, and living and breathing it, um, you know, day mm. in, day out, you know, I always joke with people, television genuinely is my world, um, maybe too worryingly is my world. So, you know, for me, it was such a joy to actually sit down and kind of raise topics that I really very passionately feel have been overlooked. And, you know, it's relevance maybe is the wrong word, but I think audience that are starting to come to the festival has changed, at least from when I started. You know, when I started out the first five, 10 years of my career, it was like the golden ticket. If you were lucky enough to have a boss who was generous enough to pay the money to let you go. And most people at that level didn't get to go. And where I've been really uh, excited the last few years is how many companies are opening that up and they're letting that kind of younger generation of talent go because it's for them, this festival, right? I mean, it's for everyone, but really these are the people that are going to take us on and carry the baton. So it's really important that we open it up to, to different voices. And as such, you know, I was very keen to introduce new sessions, you know, change old sessions. You all saw we kind of eradicated the controller session. Mm. Um, you know, we all made the point the controller session, controllers don't exist anymore. So we really need to come mm. up to date, right? And for me, what was important, again, as someone who used to attend these festivals and attends them all over the world, there's nothing worse than sitting in the audience as an exec with commissioning teams saying, it's so easy to get hold of us. It's my pet hate. We're mm. so easy to get hold of. Just ping us an email. And then they wrap up and they leave stage and you go, What's, what's your email? And you spent hours Googling it and asking people and trying to find it. So, you know, the fact that we were able to have the, the content chiefs up talking, you know, myself, Liam, and but then hear from all of their teams, the teams that you're actually going to be pitching to, the teams that are actually going to be implementing your show and work with you, holding your hand throughout the whole process, I thought added a really interesting, very fresh dimension. Um, and again, it's making it just that little bit more accessible, which, as you know, is a, a passion of mine to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Do you, do you feel that your experience, uh, kind of l looking at the festivals from from the viewpoint of a streamer, helped here? Because so, yeah, something that we I think all of us at Broadcast have definitely picked up on is it being so rare to see so many streaming commissioners like on on a stage at the same time. Like in the past, it would be like if there was one there from a particular SVOD, you would be you know all, all like cramming around that person. Yeah, it's interesting. Lots of people have asked that, and I don't think I I did that with my streaming hat on. Again, mm. so much of what I did this year was just as someone who's attended the festival for 15 years and saw glaring emissions. And, you know, we still had some obvious emissions this year, which I was really disappointed in, you know, um, from the streaming side. I think it's important we all get together and hear what the industry is saying and come together collectively. But, you know, despite that, you know, having Discovery there, having Disney there, you know, Liam and his team did a great job hearing from Anne, myself, Dan and the team, you know, I think, again, it's about making it fit for purpose, right? Ultimately, we're part of the landscape. We're very much people that are being pitched to alongside the greats, the Channel 4s, the ITVs, the BBC. So it's important, I think, to have a more holistic view of the industry and see us up there together on the stage, right? It's a, it feels like, um, you know, so much there can be an SVOD versus, but actually we're all part of the ecosystem. We're all contributing to the change or contributing to the problems that need solving. So we do need to stand up together and hold hands and face the industry as one, I think. I wanted to talk about a couple of the other key themes that emerged. So clearly, you know, 2020 felt very much like the year when when new conversations about racial diversity were opened up. And, and 2021, I, th I think, will be looked back on as as, a, as an Edinburgh when conversations around disability were opened up. Was that something, I think you mentioned in your Amazon session, actually, that you were really keen to push on that. And you talked a bit about Jack Thorne's fantastic McTaggart. So was that something that you were really keen to drive, the disability conversation? Absolutely. I think when Stuart rung and said, would you take this on? The first thing I said was, yes, if we get rid of the controller sessions and make mm. them a bit more um, fresh 
And yes, if we make disability really front and center. Mm. Um, and that's also from an Amazon perspective, right? We're not having those conversations to the level I would like. And I certainly know the other broadcasters and streamers aren't either. And everyone is doing their best. But as I said on my panel, so many people tackle um, diversity as a bit of an add-on to their job. And it needs to be a full-time thought and full-time thinking and really ingrained in the DNA of what we're all doing. So, you know, having Jack come on board as our McTaggart was just... I mean, you know, it was just absolutely fantastic. And I think, you know, I don't know anyone now who's listened to his speech and not been just physically moved, actually. I think it's not a, a perspective we hear from um, very often. It's not something that feels like it's, you know, those stories aren't very common to all of us. So I think it was quite shaming and it wasn't designed to be shaming. It wasn't meant to make people feel negative or like they hadn't done enough. It was meant to just be a very strong call to arms. And I, you know, I always say it, people always say disabilities kind of takes the back seat, but it's just not even there. It's not being talked about. And it is part of the diverse landscape we're all, you know, striving for. So it needs to be included in those conversations. As you said, it's quite often diversity. You know, we seem to tackle things around um, racial backgrounds, and but it's it's more than that. And I think it's important that we start having that um, at the forefront of the conversation. But it's not just a quick a quick turnaround. We're going to do X Y Z. This is, you know, we need people to put long term robust strategies in place. It can't just be a reaction to Edinburgh and reaction to a news story, right? It's got to be more than PR. It has to be, as I said, deeply ingrained in every part of our programming output. That's the hope, isn't it? Because you, you you need. You need big talk to kick off big things, don't you? And I, I felt like with with Jack's McTaggart, it, it was yeah, almost like organically shaming the industry, like it, like you said, it wasn't something he set out to do, but is something that just clearly comes up via the anecdotes and the data. And I, I really enjoyed. There was a disability session earlier that day um, that I thought was really good, and they were also talking about um, a report that had just come out with some quite alarming statistics. I thought. I'm so um, pleased you love that session. I have to say, yeah. you know, it was when you when you look to putting these things together, you know, a lot of it's in the scheduling and it's, you know, when do you have those sorts of um, debates? And we kicked the festival off very deliberately. Um, and George hosted a brilliant session for us. And, you know, Deborah's um, the stats that she she highlighted. Again, I think everyone was really taken aback because we just haven't seen that it hasn't really been in the press. It's talked around in the periphery and, and I can't also by the way say thank you enough because lots of broadcasters and streamers and prodcos are doing brilliant things already in this space it's not like no one's doing anything but it didn't feel like it was a collective um, effort so I think what I hope we've done is join up some of the conversations um, and again just put this at the forefront of everybody's agenda so like I said people are already doing some great work but I think we all need to come together now and make a pretty quick step change um, mm. You know, and I'm aware and I think we're all aware things don't change overnight. It takes more than, you know, a few months to to implement change. But I'm just really proud of the festival to, you know, be a catalyst for a conversation and not just reacting to conversations that have been in the ether. Um, and, you know, it, it, so I think, it, again, it felt very different this year in terms of the energy, I think, uh, which I was very pleased with. Mm, mm, definitely. Definitely. And, and were there other, you were, you were talking about the dis disability panel, were there other slightly maybe more subtle themes that, that you feel like we might have missed? Yeah, I think we really wanted as well sustainability to become um, something that we talk about. And, you know, I mean, I don't know many people that did Miss Greta's session. If anyone has, I'd urge you to go back and watch it because it was just absolutely mind blowing. Um, I mean, honestly, she's such an impressive um, woman. But 
um, you know, we wanted that to be a thread throughout the festival. And, and even to the fact that, you know, we were virtual, you know, and there was a lot of talk around if we weren't virtual, what would we have done in that case? Because I think sustainability, you know, and climate change, not just in programming, but outside of programming and how we handle this going mm. forward is really critical to the future of the industry. Obviously, last year, the festival came just kind of after Black Lives Matter. So that obviously took such a central theme. And we wanted to continue that this year. But what I didn't want were, you know, sessions trying to solve, you know, diversity and on-screen representation per se. I think you can task a couple of people with having panels to talk about some of these things, but it doesn't necessarily add to a conversation that's been so um, so thoroughly discussed through the industry and what we wanted to make every session very much told through a diverse angle. And I'm hoping mm. people felt that influence. I've certainly had lots of feedback um, to that. So I was very happy with that. Um, you know, concluding with people like London Hughes, who I just thought was absolutely fantastic. Timing is so critical as to what you will talk about. And there's that constant monitoring in the lead up to the festival. You know, is there a topic going to come up? Is there something we should be discussing? Um, because I think the other challenge going in, and it was a challenge because I think we're an industry that um, we really love to um, focus sometimes on the negative. And I did want coming off the back of what has been I mean, look, I think for everything, everyone, the most challenging of years, both personally and professionally, I did want there to be mm. a celebratory aspect. And I did want people to feel some love and a bit of a hug, you know, something wrapped around because it was, you know, we wanted people to feel a that they were getting value, that they got some kind of education from it, but also that they could sit back and just really enjoy some conversation. And, and how do you think your successor can can build on this and, and to keep Edinburgh relevant for, for 2022? What advice do you have? I think everyone just brings their own perspective. I think it was interesting, you know, lots of my decision making, as I said, was just driven as being someone who was there every year and chose repeatedly not to go to certain sessions or thinking, mm. God, if only we had. Um, and I think whoever comes in next will have exactly the same thoughts. I think, you know, we always say to people like writers, write about something you're passionate about. And it goes the same as a job like this. You know, you've got to you've got to look at the wider industry, the topics that we think are critical to our future, but you've also got to come at it from your own very personal perspective, because I think that's where you're going to get the most genuine um, outcome. You know, it was interesting when I started talking to the committee and airing, this is what I think. And everyone suddenly goes, oh God, we think that too. Why haven't we done this? We should change this. We should add that. So, you know, I think it's good to find that collective voice, but that always will come from personal experience. So, all I'll say to my accessor is you lucky thing. I mean, it's just, it was the most joyous thing to be a part of. Um, mm. The team are absolutely incredible. Um, the work that goes on behind the scenes, I had, had never quite realized <laughs> the weight of what goes into something like this. And it's, it's a real juggling act. So, you know, uh, good luck to whoever does it because it's just so much fun um, and really connects you to the industry in a very different, very humbling way. I feel very, very privileged to just be in the industry after having heard some of the stories I have this week. So that was Georgia Brown, advisory chair at this year's Edinburgh and Han Hannah and John are, are still with me. And we wanted to try and go into a little bit more depth around some of the big topics that were, that were discussed at this year's Edinburgh, three of which I think we've honed in on was Channel 4 privatization, of course, which no one can stop talking about, the, the international stuff, which John's going to discuss guarding, especially some, some really interesting featured panels from the, from the streaming service. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about disability and the wider diversity push. And, and we can have a little chat about Jack Thorne's McTaggart, Georgia, obviously reflected on earlier. Um, but Hannah, I, I thought we could start with you at first, because 
unsurprisingly, the, the debate at Edinburgh was really focused on Channel 4 privatisation, especially on that final day. So there was a, uh, a big talk about the indie sector, which ended up basically being a privatisation talk. And then the closing debate was dedicated entirely to Channel 4 privatisation. You would think that was the only broadcaster in, in the UK. Uh, so clearly it's, it's a huge thing that is going to get resolved relatively soon. The consultation closes soon. And from what I could see from the closing debate, it was sort of John, John Whittingdale versus almost like, like a whole, whole bunch of people corralling together. So what, what did you think about the privatisation coverage at this year's festival? Yeah, the last Whittingdale session was a bit of in a lion pit. I would yeah. say is a good analogy of what <laughs> happened in that final he loves final it though, doesn't session. He? He, I think he relishes yeah. it. <laughs> he really does. I, I would say what I think was quite surprising about the discussion at Edinburgh this year is it kind of moved on the conversation around privatization from a pure the sectors against it. It's all a nostalgia play. Like we're looking back at these classic shows that Channel 4 have done and think. The arguments, I think, went beyond Channel 4. If there was no Channel 4, we wouldn't have this show, we wouldn't have that show, we wouldn't have... And actually got a bit more into analysing what Channel 4 needs to do in the future. And a little bit more critical thought, I think, was applied to Channel 4 and, and the kind of current state of play. I know Marcus Ryder especially said, you know, we need to stop looking at it through rose-tinted glasses and start thinking, where are some of the cracks? And and what kind of needs to be done for Channel 4 to better itself, I guess. Um, and a lot of talk was around the remit and how actually over the years, we the remit has been quite significantly weakened. So we're all kind of harking back to a time when the remit was really strong, but it's perhaps not where it once was. That's kind of what I, the vibe that I felt from Edinburgh, which I was, I think, quite surprised at from the beginning um, because obviously the sector wants to save it but so you'd think that every discussion was against but um i think it was quite mature to have some other conversations mm. around channel four i think that's a really good point i think that the the shifting narrative was was really felt wasn't it and you know broadcasts not for sale campaign has has been doing a fantastic job at, at highlighting the work of of channel four uh both both past and present but I got the feel too that there are changes required regardless and that can almost help further Channel 4's cause not to be sold because you can say we'll, we'll, we'll do X or, or we can do Y or whatever. John Thoday was talking from, from Avalon was talking about the um, need for the, the government to help Channel 4 into the future so it, it, to remain in, in quasi-public ownership uh, but kind of like embracing like a streaming model which I thought was interesting. Particularly helpful to actually have these discussions to the government because I don't think, well, I mean, the culture argument to them and what shows have done well on Channel 4 is mm. not going to back them down. Like, that's not the argument that's ultimately going to win this. Like, you need to come down on the on the arguments that they're thinking about rather than, I mean, Whittingdale's not going to make a decision based on the cultural argument for Channel 4. It's beyond that. Um, so I think this type of conversation and these types of debates are actually the way to win over the government. Hannah's reporting, just FYI, on on on, on the Channel 4 privatisation during Edinburgh chat was because it was so prevalent. Uh, I don't know how many screeds and words you've actually written on it, but it just seems to me that you've written almost the book's worth on Channel 4 privatisation just at Edinburgh. So uh, an incredible effort to kind of digest all these many uh, conflicting views. 
it was one of the points that you raised in your piece uh, when John Whittingdale was talking, and he 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 kind of he he proposed about the the, the you know the suggesting that in-house production could be on the cards for for Channel Four, and I think that's you know that's that's a quite an interesting argument for for one reason of privatization. Obviously, in-house production is something that you know big privately owned companies are doing and are doing because they want to have. Uh, the ownership of the IP and the value um, that that brings to the producers. But uh, it reminded me of of a piece that's from our current mag that I, I wrote recently when I was speaking to Peter Langenberg from Banerjee, the, the COO of Banerjee Group, obviously a consolidated themselves and, and you know, a quite a big production company. But he said that um, broadcasters used to think the, con- the consolidation play that's happening in the world, he used to say, he said that, Broadcasters used to think that in-house production was the key, the golden key, he called it, to kind of ultimate success. But then they suddenly realized a, a, a way back this wasn't the golden key and they still need a thriving independent production sector to help fuel it. And if you look at some of the big streamers who aren't necessarily doing in-house production themselves, call on huge amounts of the indie sector to do it. And if you take away one of the biggest parts of that, uh, you're, you're just going to be removing a massive chunk of, of of work, creative license, creativity, and and actual labour by by saying this whole oh yeah we bring it in house yeah like like it's a fear that in house will build up and then it will have an impact on the indie sector but it's not necessarily a given that mm. say a buyer with in house capabilities would completely shift and there'd be less money and less commissions mm. yeah definitely especially if the government say they'll guarantee it or put in the right obligations to protect it, which I can't imagine that they, would, they wouldn't they would do. And mm. then John Montiel said there'd, there'd be a cap on it if in-house was going to continue. Yeah, it felt a bit like uh, that That was part of part of the shifting narrative that you, that you were talking about it did involve John Whittingdale going to, into a little bit more detail about what a potentially privatised Channel 4 could look like and how that could still serve the public service broadcasting landscape and incidentally the the boss of all three media jane turton uh in amidst the the same panel that john thode was on um said some quite interesting things one of which was she, she was made a bit of a throwaway line but was talking about how channel four could isn't necessarily not going to spend more money if it was to be privatized i think this was maybe the first that we'd heard from like a big figure from from the indie sector talking about how channel four might be pushed to, to spend more on indies what once once it changes so there there was a lot of or when it could change so there was a lot of nuance uh, that i quite liked and the, the channel I, I thought hannah the the channel four commissioners themselves were quite interesting on privatization there was a, a spotlight session on on the first day what what did you think of that yeah it was quite interesting we spun a story out of this kind of channel four commissioners saying calling the term, term kind of galvanized mm. by the threat of privatization and i guess it does make sense because your commissioning strategy and and your output and all of those different things was literally being scrutinized at the highest level by government indies the the us as journalists and so all of that is really being picked apart and you're quite on the spotlight and so a reaction to that to make you kind of step up your game and commission different shows I mean it's quite telling that I think Channel 4 were probably the main announcer of shows during Edinburgh Festival I think I clocked like 16 announcements which is far far above all of the other um, broadcasters so it's definitely kind of sending a message like look we are buying loads of shows 
and um, investing in new formats because none of them were um, re reboots or anything like that. They were all original formats. So that is something quite interesting. And I, I think the, I mean, if it's me, the threat of privatization probably would make me step up my game. Especially, I guess the main things lauded at Channel 4 is the fact that it needs to find new returning series. It relies on imports from other channels and um, all of that stuff that really does relate to commissioning as well. Um, not commissioning from enough smaller indies and quite a lot of small indies were among those announcements. So there's definitely there's definitely a bit of a defense in that. Yeah, and incidentally, uh, Channel 4 announced 16 shows and ITV and Channel 5 announced zero between them. Mm, I thought, was yeah. There was some some from the BBC and, and some international that we'll go on to talk about, but nothing from ITV and nothing from Channel 5. So clearly leaving leaving all the commissioning annos to, to Channel 4, which was fun for you, Hannah. John, you were you were focusing on some of the some of the streamers who were out in full force really at Edinburgh. Very rare to see such big cohorts from from all of the major streamers and, and I think mm. spoke to what they want to do in, in the UK. So what were some of the highlights for you, John? Yeah, so exactly as you say, Max, the fact that they were out in force tends to point to the fact that the UK outside of the US is still probably, uh, without wanting to sound too jingoistic, the most important territory for, for you know, the big streamers. We obviously got huge SVOD cut through, massive pay TV cut through. So, you know, Sky is obviously a huge, um, you know, in, in about, what, 12 million households? I've, I've definitely got that figure wrong, but, you know, definitely over 10 million households and, and sky is often the portal for these streamers as a distribution partner so the uk is still a massively important territory it's not surprising that they weren't they were going to be you know putting their setting their stall out for producers to come with their best ideas and within that they all said fairly similar things in terms of what they're looking for in terms of the kind of shows and i'll come on to that in a minute because it was it was it was quite important i think the telling point that i saw was the it was just the, it was the first session i covered and it was um and mensa netflix's vp of original series on the drama side uh, in uk obviously Anne is a as a former sky commissioner so she's a huge huge commissioner in in the uk extremely well-respected, well-known, and internationally for that matter, not just the UK. And she she kind of, she put out that even when Netflix does a, a lower budget show, these were still multi-million pound endeavours. And it, it kind of really pointed to Netflix commissioner talking about what they mean, the premium feel. I think people have danced around the idea about what premiums, not wanting to say that, you know, a Netflix show has a bit of gloss and a bit of extra higher quality i don't know what that is a nebulous thing how do you define quality but you know that extra investment which you do see on screen if you think about how lavish the crown looks and it, it was a kind of it wasn't an admission it was just a, a, a you know a, an understanding that these are super expensive undertakings so if you're gonna try and pitch your really great show you've got to be able to prove that you can do it and she was calling on smaller indies to be honest with themselves about their ability because they want to employ smaller indies but if you don't have the infrastructure and she even called you know the, the, a specific hire like a financial controller obviously you know people do have, all, all indies have financial people but you know specific people within the indie to help make sure that a an ambitious pitch comes on board and actually gets to screen if you don't have that infrastructure behind you then team up 
then try and find a partner to do it. And, you know, Netflix aren't going to say, oh, well, we want to, you know, just buy it from one indie. They'll be happier if you're combining it with a company that can provide you with extra resource or, or, or help to make sure that that brilliant idea does get seen to screens. Good honesty, isn't it? Because it's so, mm. easy, for, so easy for commissioners to, to say, we'll commission from anyone and, and bring us any idea. And, and actually the, the Netflix unscripted guys kind of, said the opposite in a sense didn't they they, they were talking a bit about how they, they won't just take on big budget shows and, and and it can be of a lower budget which is yeah it's interesting to hear two from the same streamer talking kind of in opposite terms we should also scripted productions are are invariably more expensive so you know it's 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 it, it, as you say honestly it was nice to hear a drama commissioner fully understanding that they're expensive, but also saying that because they're so expensive, they have to be right. Again, another wonderful bit of honesty from Anne Mensah. She said, I don't really understand what international appeal is. What is that? What does that mean? And she basically said this thing, this this comment, this expression that everyone uses in the streaming world because they're everywhere. And, and that's what they want to show. It's, a, it's actually pretty meaningless. They So she said, rather than trying to pitch a show that had international appeal, come to us with the pitches that really tackle a theme, a universal theme that's relatable to us as humans and consumers of TV at its core. So she referenced grief and love and, and, and stuff like that. And then everyone, everyone who I saw, you know, taking pitches was saying, yeah, we want universal themes. Ben Kelly and Daisy Lilly said it. Liam Keelan said it from uh, from Disney Plus. It's 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 things that we can absolutely understand um, and and enjoy. Um, family, love, grief, that kind of thing. You know, human emotions and human experiences that we really relate to that tend to resonate above and beyond the super high concept stuff that is really fantastical and we we also love, but possibly is a little bit more removed from what life is like. Yeah. I've, uh, for me, I feel like gone are the days when broadcasters can constantly say streamers wouldn't have commissioned X or or streamers wouldn't have commissioned Y, but they still do. And it was annoying. I think Ian Katz was yeah. talking in the Channel 4 session. We, we, Hannah, we were talking about this earlier this week. Ian Katz was talking about how a streamer wouldn't have commissioned the drama, the upcoming drama Help, which is about a care home, which has Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham. And I just think we're we're very like beyond that narrative now. I don't see any reason why Netflix wouldn't have commissioned that. And I think it really taps into what uh, you were reporting, John and Mensa said about international appeal, because help is something that deals with a theme and it might be rooted in a in a British nation and region, but that doesn't mean that, that an SWOD wouldn't have liked it. It feels like we're, we're well beyond that now. And was there anything else, John, that caught your eye in, in the international side of things? Yeah, I mean, one thing that was interesting from the other, there was, there was a lot of other streamers still there. And, you know, NBC Universal content chief was um, Susan Rovner was talking about Peacock and HBO Max were, were in force. And they are all really looking to the UK for their formats uh, because they know that, you know, that formats from the UK are often really good because we're, we're, we're one of the best creators of formats. And, and they were talking up the idea of international co-pros. They all mooted it as, you know, as, as a model that they would like to pursue. And I think that they are pursuing cases, but whether they pursue it more. Um, one of the interesting things for me, actually, was it was, it was a, a kind of an almost, a, you know, when people talk about partnership and wanting to be working hand in hand with others, um, you sometimes lose sight of what, what, actual companies want and what they 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 feel they want and lisa home from discovery plus 
I thought with all this talk about rights flexibility that we hear in the international market about sharing rights, she gave off the impression that actually Discovery Plus Plus would be pretty, yeah, they would be flexible where they had to be if they bought something where they could only get certain rights to certain territories. Yeah, they'd have to do it and they would be forced a bit. But at the end of the day, if they're going to commission something, they can control a lot of the rights and they'll do that. So I actually thought that from a from a from a rights perspective, Discovery Plus were talking very honestly about we're not going to share many rights, but if if possible, you know, we're going to commission stuff and we'll have that and we'll have that for global. Yes, if we buy a really great feature doc, we're going to have to deal with the fact we might not have it in certain territories, but we don't mind being a bit Swiss cheesy if we're that's what her expression <laughs> if we want to. And I thought that was, you know, that's candid. Basically, someone saying look. Yeah, we want to share rights, and that is important. But they're not going to if they if they if they can help it, you know, because they want to own the content. Because owning content is so valuable. Moving on a little bit, then um, we obviously had the McTaggart again this year because it's annual. Don't know why I said that. <laughs> um, and um, this year, writer Jack Thorne, it was his time to do the speech, and I think, I mean, personally, it was one of the most powerful speeches I've actually think I've seen of a McTaggart I think he spoke very eloquently and um, I think again because he's not a performer his way of speaking just came over so like raw and honest that it was it was pretty mind-blowing I know Max you cover a lot obviously it was focused on um, disability this year and I know Max obviously that's been quite on hand at covering this for broadcast I wonder what what did you make of uh, this year's McTaggart? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I, I would urge anyone to watch it. Um, and there was something about the kind of raw emotion. He he says straight away that he's not like a natural public speaker and doesn't do that stuff very often. And it kind of made it better in a way. Like no, normally it's people who are very used to used to doing that and they're they're very good too, but in a different way. So I would I would urge anyone to watch it. And look, I I, I touched on things with with Georgia around the McTaggart earlier. Um, but I, I can see it in some respects instilling a, a sea change in the industry. Like I think what what I'm wondering about now is is what happens from here. So some there were there, there were some uh, incredible incredibly powerful quotes I thought from Jack which relate to this. So he, so he said, gender, race, sexuality all rightly get discussed at length, but disability gets relegated out. He talked about himself failing the the cause of disability and and spoke about incidents where, for example disabled actors have their lines just chopped in half like right in front of him and and he feels that he should have spoken up more so really powerful stuff and stuff that he's looking to change so jack also announced the launch of a lobbying group called underlying health condition um which will look to set up a fund to improve spaces for disabled people one having spoken to lots of disabled people and activists over the past months one really obvious problem is literally space and access. And Jack, again, used his McTaggart to tell horror stories of disabled talent who've had to cope with inaccessible buildings. One had to crawl up some steps every day to get to her desk. So he said, we need spaces to be truly inclusive so that never again will people be crawling across the floor denied a meeting because of lack of access. So that is clearly something big that production companies and, and broadcasters are going to have to work on. And, and, and it's a wider societal thing, isn't it? So you would hope that they can draw on maybe other more successful industries or, or looking into that. And, and Jack, Jack was speaking a few hours after a really interesting panel on disability, which was timed with the third big report that's come out over the last uh, few weeks into this area, of which more than three quarters of the respondents to this report, which is done by the Seleni Henry Centre, said they felt their impairment had impacted on their career choice. And 80% said the same for career progression. 
Uh, so a big problem highlighted is is indies and broadcasters re requiring people with certain numbers of credits and because of legacy issues with disabled people coming into the TV sector, they don't have the necessary credits. So they're finding it really difficult to, to move up the chain. The same with the, the amount of time between a green light given and and the show the cameras rolling basically so so in in the execs turn to the usual suspects and again disabled people get shut out so that's something that that jack is talking about trying to address and and the broadcasters to be fair to them have put forward various targets over the last few weeks and, and months that have looked at this but Anne Mensah and Piers Wenger announced a really interesting sounding scheme for for d disabled comedies and dramas so over the next five years the the two the broadcaster and the SVOD which is really interesting that they're combining in itself are going to come together and commission disabled creatives on hopefully a, a whole bunch of shows and that will redress another of what I thought was Jack Thorne's really interesting points which is around the fact that disabled shows are never given uh, a normal quote-unquote normal budget so he's he's writing a, a show for BBC Two this year which is his first to focus on disability that will have a regular BBC drama budget and that even that he said, is actually coming out of the BBC History Department, but has got some co-pro funding. So in the past, the com commissioners take little pots of money from other places, or these shows come from schemes, but you don't, if you don't have the full amount of money being thrown at these dramas, then they'll always be ever so slightly relegated, as, as Jack Thorne described. So I thought that was really, really interesting. I think it's going to be interesting going forward how disability dovetails with the rest of diversity. And, and again, I say that with quotes. So... Obviously, with, with, with Jack Thorne's McTaggart, disability was high on the agenda. But as, as the wider diversity agenda is invariably also caught up in this, Max, um, you, know, you know, in the industry, what, what were the other aspects of diversity that were that caught your eye among, among the panels and the various sessions that were on? There was some touching upon the issue of racial diversity at this year's Edinburgh, which, as we know, was the dominating feature of last year's Edinburgh. Uh, but obviously the concern is that you move between the strands of diversity, you try and redress one issue and forget about another one, which takes much more than a year to address. So, uh, you know, other, other, other sessions which are well worth a watch at the alternative McTaggart, London Hughes, spoke very candidly about the UK commissioning sector and uh, actually spoke very similarly to Jamila Jamil, who did the previous one in terms of having to go to America to, to really find success. Um, and Afwa Hirsch as well, who announced a, a tie-up with, with Fremantle is, is worth a listen for, for the wider strands of diversity. But I think trying to redress these really huge issues that need money thrown at them surrounding disability and, and also sticking to the, to the other diversity strands, quote unquote, uh, is, is going to be a really big task. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. Right. So normally we uh, we come to our what we've been watching session at this point, often often the, considered the, to be the best part of the podcast. But today we're going to think about Edinburgh specifically and just talk about one commission that, that we're really excited by or, or, or thought was quite interesting to have come from the uh, to co have come from the festival. So, Hannah, you have to dwell on Channel 4, one of its one of the 16. What have you what have you gone for? So among the 16 that particularly mm -hmm. caught my eye was Outrageous Extensions from Avalon, which is actually Ty Temper the popular artist is fronting a kind of grand designs-esque property show but it's all based on extensions and as someone that doesn't have any money to buy a house the fact that people would spend between 500,000 and 1 million on an extension is mind-blowing 
so I think that sounds quite fun and also I just think why not get him on to front it it sounds really fun he's got like a backstory as well like he's got his own property portfolio so it doesn't feel quite as random as just bringing somebody in onto a show which I always think is really important when they do these kind of um getting talent for different shows like you kind of have to have a connection otherwise it just looks a bit weird and doesn't work so that sounds quite fun the other one from channel four don't judge me but I'm quite intrigued by is um and it sounds just like a kind of ordinary e4 format it's um it's it's about thruples the love triangle uh, it's from naked um and for some reason but it's like a dating show but it's like couples trying to get their third person involved for a thruple but it's a dating show and I'm like why not it's fun it's e 4 I'm here for it let's see where it goes love it I feel like if anything can persuade the government not to sell channel four it's a tiny temper property show and, a, and an e4 show about thruples right exactly, We're done. exactly. <laughs> that's good if, if it was if it's close then those are the things that are gonna just like slightly push it over the line yeah take that John Westingdale <laughs> John Elms you were also looking into some channel four shows but for you it was a drama that really caught your eye well actually it is a channel four show but I'm, I'm quite curious to hear about thruples now I think that's an interesting uh, part of the dating world that has clearly not got its fair break on on TV. So I'll definitely be tuning into that. I know, I know, it seems uh, it seems easy for me to pick a Channel Four commission, but as Hannah and you, Max, and we've pointed out, they did seem to commission everything during uh, Edinburgh. So it would be it's not surprising that I've gone for a Channel Four one. But, but basically, the one I picked is is a two-year realization of a story that we wrote which broadcast broke in 2019 about the adaptation of Candice Carty Williams uh, hit novel Queenie um, it's been turned into a um, half-hour drama the, the book is a, you know a, a fantastic and really really popular popular novel and it's been in development for a while and I've been kind of waiting for it to greenlit and hoping that it was going to going to be done and and, and Carty Williams whose who's, who's novel writing is, is her, her writing style is really really funny and irreverent but also but also cuts through with a lot of important topics about contemporary Britain is adapting her own work for the screen so I think that's going to be a really 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 good drama um, and 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 something that actually does fulfill what what I think Channel 4 does really well which is hit the nub of, of, of parts of British society that that we we need to showcase on screen so I'm, I'm really looking forward to queenie all hail queenie a more serious reason to not privatize channel 4 than yeah, <laughs> the absolutely apple, the apple mentioned <laughs> truffles and tiny temper yeah, uh, i feel like in true news rap style i can never seem to pick a serious show ever. <laughs> i'm like i i can't think the last time i said something that was genuinely serious <laughs> good stuff good stuff well i'm i'm not going to pick a channel 4 show because we, we don't want to go uh, go over the top but uh netflix unveiled not one not two but three reality tv shows which i like uh i like the sound of a couple of them one of which is called snowflake mountain it's also produced by naked uh and, and it's following a group of young adults who aren't yet living to their full potential, heading to a wilderness survival retreat to shed their pampered backgrounds. Uh, I, I like all of the sound of that. I'm quite a big fan of Netflix reality shows. I also like how the press release detailed that they're not yet living up to their full potential. Like by what <laughs> definition are they, are they not doing that? I, mean, I can't wait to see all these losers go up a mountain and, and stop being so pampered. So I, th I thought that's gonna be really good. And on a more serious note, uh, once again, showing Netflix's unscripted play, like this isn't just one show every couple of years like this is now 
three different UK indies being being commissioned for for big shows. So I'll be watching that. And I thought that sounded really good. They done I a like, casting call yet? We should all go. <laughs> uh, uh, none of us are living up to our full potential. We should exactly. Go. I'm like, how do I apply? Yeah. <laughs> On that note, we're all off to join the cast of Snowflake Mountain. <laughs> but it's been it's been absolutely wonderful to have have the two of you. And it's been wonderful to speak to Georgia Brown earlier. And we are back. The news wrap is is here. So thank you all for coming. And thanks for another great Edinburgh, guys. It's always a team spirit, and we've done another one. Congrats to us. Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap. I'm Max Goldbart, and you've been listening to Georgia Brown and my colleagues, John Elms and Hannah Bowler. You can check out all 54 past episodes of the pod on Spotify, iTunes, or on the website at www.broadcastnow.co.uk. Listener.